back to Deep Focus. My name's Quaid, with my co-host here, Nick. How are you doing today, man? Very good, very good. Nice. Um, we are here today to do an episode about one of my favorite films of the past few years, uh, John Krasinski's A Quiet Place. The sequel's coming out now in a little bit this month. Uh, so we're going to do an episode on that, so we might as well get them both done. Yeah. Um, I believe, didn't we see this in theaters together or am I completely off about that? Um, I can't, I, I think you might be off about that, but I okay. did see, this is a film that I like made a point to see, uh, three times. Same. Um, so that's why out, I'm so, thinking we yeah. might've seen it together, even <laughs> yeah. if it was like a later showing. <laughs> it might be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, this is a crazy film. Uh, obviously spoiler warning going forward. Mm-hmm. but it's a horror film uh, and it, it does a lot of very original things. So for those uh, who have seen it, they obviously know this, but the, it's about essentially an alien species invading uh, because there's like some sort of news clipping about it, like an asteroid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, have like super hearing. And so in order to survive, you have to be incredibly quiet. And so, Krasinski, and I believe this is his second film. He made like a, a drama early on in his directorial oh, really? career, which I haven't seen. Yeah, I forget what it's called. I've always wanted to watch it, but it's like never on a streaming service for whatever reason. Uh, mm-hmm. Brief interviews with Hideous Men and The Hollers. So this is his third okay. film. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, so essentially it also has one of my favorite themes, which is... Uh, <laughs> Just family. <laughs> it's just like the standard <laughs> film about family, uh, yeah. the meaning of family. Uh, but it's, you know, it's an eternal thing. Um, how did you feel about this when you first watched it, Nick? Um, I mean, I was just blown away by the sound design, uh, first mm-hmm. and foremost, just because um, it does something that a, a lot of horror films don't do, which is use silence really well. You know, Um and I think the juxtaposition between the silence and like, you know, the super intense moments and like when things actually get actiony and loud, it just like kind of feels like it's overloading your senses a little bit uh, just because yeah. you've gotten so used to the quiet. Right. Yeah. The contrast is really nice. It does right. uh, with how, you know, this film's able to build incredible tension mm-hmm. um, just because they have to be so serious. They have to be so stealthy. They have to be so deliberate. Um, that it really builds up to those fever pitch moments really well. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The sound design is pretty amazing because that's essentially uh, a character in this film, really. Um, yeah. You know, the um, his his scream at the end of this film, though, is I think one of the best pieces of acting to come out in this decade. Yeah. Um, that was just fucking beautiful. Like, I don't... Like, <laughs> it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that that moment is worth the entire like everything like i shouldn't even say makes it worth like because the whole movie's a pleasure but like um <laughs> it, it's it's just that cherry on top right yeah um no it's like, a great of some of ahead. the best moments in cinema that i can like think of this always uh, pops into my head um and just you know we don't have this uh pussyfoot around the spoilers at all but um when his children are in the uh in the van or in the truck and it's getting destroyed by one of the monsters right and he has like he only has the one option right which is to just scream Mm -hmm. um 
yeah no it was it was great yeah and contrasting it with the sign language obviously because the the eldest daughter is uh deaf right so you know having the last words in sign language between them two and then letting out the giant scream to mm. sacrifice himself mm. yeah it's very nice it uh, you know it's that eternal theme it does it so well it's so hardwired into us as humans but that sort of self-sacrifice for family and for um, your children especially yeah exactly um it really hits the heart. It's, you know, um, it's not, this is not some super complicated movie about, you know, no, like it's very simple. But... Detail. Yeah. It, it, the, another thing about this film, uh, speaking on that is it starts so fast. You get that opening, you get that sort of a uh, prologue where, you know, they're one of the siblings dies, um, with that mm -hmm. great scene with the toy that lets off all the noise. But after yeah. that, it literally, it starts the day. And then at the end of the day, it's over, you know, at the beginning of the next day, it's over. Mm -hmm. Um, the movie starts going and it doesn't stop. It's very, very, um, um, like well paced, like the, yeah, the pace, yeah. the tempo, everything like that. It, um, but you know, <clears throat> another thing I've always really liked about this film is how almost small it is. If you take the CG away from this, mm -hmm. it's like really inspirational for um, a beginning filmmaker. Because mm -hmm. what do you got? You got like uh, five to seven actors in this, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, as long as you would be able to find a way to sort of get around that CG or do it on your own, you could make something like this. And yet mm -hmm. this is so amazing. You know, everything from the sound design, the use of the camera, the acting. Um, but really, all you would need is a farm location, you know, um, and you could make something like this. And so that's a huge testament towards someone's individual abilities. Uh, I mean, you can make a genre film like this. Um, I can't imagine with, this like costing more than 25 million. I don't think so. Yeah, I could look it up. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe for like the actor's sake, but just imagining like, you know, John Krasinski's the director and one of the leads and then um the other yeah. um the other leads his like actual wife right so i just imagine that you know like 17 I don't think million paid. yeah yeah that's awesome that's like a good mid mid budget which you don't yeah. see anymore you know <laughs> no you don't i mean you see it in horror that's the only thing you get away with <clears throat> right right if you want a, a middle-sized budget you can do it if you make a horror movie <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it, it was a huge success um, worldwide, made a shit ton of money. Uh, and it's just a great example. You know, I feel similar to, uh, shit, what's that? Overlord. I feel mm -hmm. like this is similar to Overlord in the sense that it's like one of those great examples of genre. Just like I would say that like filmmaking. the insight isn't as complex as Overlord, but um, I think this was done way better. Uh, yeah. In my opinion. Like the insight hits your heart a lot more. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't overlord, and it's so lean too. It's uh, it's just nice to see a film like that where, you know, everything that needed to be there was there, and there was nothing that didn't. You know exactly. Um, but honestly, like I would consider this. I think I would consider a Quiet Place a masterpiece of horror. Yep. You know, which is awesome considering it's. Uh, I think it's Krasinski's first like like large budget film though right yeah absolutely um and what i mean by that is like you know like more than a million <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. i don't know how much his other one was because i didn't even know i thought this was his like directorial debut but 
Well, he did like some really small dramas, essentially, like, you know, people talking in a room type movies. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they, in terms of like a big Hollywood movie, uh, this was it. This was his debut. This is like the first film that most people would have seen that was his, you know? Right. Um, but that is interesting. It's it's cool to know that he worked up to it, you know, between, I, I bet, directing a, uh, a lot of episodes of The Office. I'm sure he did that. And uh, I actually think those that it was, um, films. it was uh, that one film, fuck, what was it called? Um, he was an actor in it. I think it, it had Michael Bay involved somehow um 13 hours oh yeah yeah i think i think that had a huge piece to do with how he kind of like got um the funding for this but i can't really remember no that's true because michael bay's Uh, in the credits is he michael bay yeah i think michael bay's in the credits as some sort of producer or something i can look that up but uh, um but this is like a very like traditional path of how you would um you know get that directorial seat um, which is cool. I mean, like, I feel like not a lot of people, um, do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Michael Bay's in the credits as a producer. I do think his uh, production company was, uh, probably behind this film in terms of maybe just in terms of supporting, helping getting funding or directly funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's cool though. Um, it's nice to see like the system actually work the way it's supposed to, you know, Mm -hmm. you have so many people just, you know, pushing their friends or whatever through. Uh, It's nice to see like, you know, talent, recognized talent type thing. Mm -hmm. And as we've said before, Michael Bay is a master filmmaker. (laughs) And if you don't know this, (laughs) get out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Uh, no. Uh, I mean, this is a, this is an amazing film. Uh, like even thinking about the, um, the prologue scene there, how everything's set up, you know, how you have the obvious affection of the family, you have the illustration of needing to survive and gather resources. You have the illustration of the children wanting to find a way, uh, to safety. You know, you have the young kid, the young boy who dies trying to say that if we get in a rocket, we're all going to be safe and we can get away from them. Mm-hmm. You have the parents taking extra precautions, instituting sort of, uh draconian but necessary uh laws on their children's life in order for them to be safe um and then of course you have uh the scene uh the first monster coming out of nowhere and that's a terrifying scene if you're saying for the first time where the and you know the sound design right you have this quiet you have this little bit of wind um that's all you have like the sound of footsteps on sand and then of course the oldest daughter's deaf so when you are uh, in her perspective, um, mm-hmm. whether from the third person or first, um, you get that additional audio cue of absolutely nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And then when that uh, toy just goes off, you know, just the standard toy sound and he just gets, uh, you know, absolutely eviscerated by this beast. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, you know, that was actually everything something, right there. That was actually that's something everything. that this film did well in terms of technique too, is um, uh focusing on perspective because i feel like as as filmmakers we tend not to think about this as much whereas like you know a novelist you know it's everything to them yeah third right? person everything yeah yeah um especially like whose whose eyes you're seeing the world through in, in a novel is super important right yeah but i think as as 
this is something that I always see filmmakers forgetting um, because it's something that you can actually kind of just forget in film because you can just shoot it standard, right? Yeah. And if you shoot it standard, it's just objective. But like, I think one of the most important things is to always remember that you always have a perspective, whether it's, you know, omniscient, which I, I would call standard, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or through one of the characters, which I think is where some of the better filmmaking uh, takes place. Not to say there there aren't great films that are like shown from the omniscient perspective, yeah. right? Or like the audience or fourth wall perspective, but like, um, you know, um, where kind of like all the decisions and stuff kind of um, like for the camera, for the sound um, revolve around one character's perspective. And you can jump perspectives and stuff like this movie actually jumps a lot. Um, yeah. between characters um but you can always tell that there's a specific person that you're seeing um the world through even if you're like looking at them right i'm not talking about like a mm -hmm. literal perspective but like you know an emotional perspective to where like the decisions behind what shot you're using how the sound's coming off you know those things tie to one character's experience yep right that's absolutely um, true and this film does that really really well um and like you get to see i i really don't feel like there is a lot of just like blank omniscient perspective in this right you're almost no. always seeing the world through one character's eyes or another you yeah. know and that scene that you were describing where we do see it through the deaf girl's eyes for a little bit it was amazing right where you kind of like you know the sound cuts out you i think you just see the reactions of um everyone first right before she realizes what's happening Yes. Right. So like you kind of see the emotional through line for that scene um, um, ramp up after the action starts because she's like kind of lagging behind on all this, mm -hmm. you know, and I think honestly that made it more kind of like horrific when, you know, the kid gets annihilated. Right. Mm -hmm. um, just because you it's all there seeing it from the perspective of another kid. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, which makes it uh, actually, you know, one one of my favorite scenes of all time uh, does that same thing where uh, it's. Have you seen uh, my neighbor uh, Totoro yet? No. Um, it's a it's a Miyazaki film, right? Um, but there's a scene in it where this little this little girl, like very little, I think she's like four or something, right? Um, and like her older sister is her like hero, and she like you know. I guess not hero, but she, she doesn't really see her as like another kid. Right. Mm. Um, she always sees her as someone that's supposed to take care of her. And like, there's this moment where like she, um, the older girl's crying because she thinks her mom's going to die. And, um, she doesn't, she's just with this old lady and, um, the little kid like walks in on them. And there's just this moment where, uh, her entire image of the girl shatters and it's like it's heartbreaking because it's like it's a you know little kid watching her older sister right and it makes it even more impactful in that moment and i think this is something similar where like that moment of horror like you know i think a lot of other horror films like i'd say uh worst made ones would have shown this moment um you know, omnisciently, just like you were right, saying, they would right, just exactly. shot the monster um, and the guy, and the the horror you'd be getting was from like the dying victim, you know, right, and the and, and the you know, uh, you know dissonant strings over, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. But 
like doing it this way where you kind of watch it through the perspective of you know this kid watching her younger brother um just die and not not even knowing like that it was going to happen or um like being prepared for it or you know like it was it was just it blindsides her right and it wasn't really meant to create a sense of horror in the audience i think but you know um to the empathetic viewer i think it it is more horrific because of the perspective that we're seeing it through mm -hmm. you know um, which is cool which is cool i definitely prefer it that way yeah I mean, and those are the, as you, you get uh, scenes from the perspective of the full family, the mother, the father, the son and the daughter, but your two main viewpoints generally are going to be in this film is both John Krasinski and uh, the daughter, uh, the deaf daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and that entire initial scene there, that prologue is mm -hmm. essentially the movie encapsulated without Krasinski actually being able to save his children. Mm -hmm. Um uh, you know, I, I was I was watching that. I was like, I know I harp on this all the time, but I was like, yeah, that that opening scene, man, that's just the short film right there. That's all. You know what I mean? Like, do you want yeah. to make short film there? There's an example right there. Well, actually, um, I, I love that, too, because um, I, I have a this is just something that I do as a director, not something that like I expect out of every film that I watch. But I really love the idea of a handshake at the beginning. Right. Mm. And what I mean by that is essentially I, I, I personally believe that the first few minutes of a film, like the prologue or whatever, right, should be a handshake between the director and the audience. Right. Saying this is what this film is going to be. Right. Yeah. And um, this is like it, it should kind of like illustrate the experience and like the technique um, that you're going to be utilizing throughout the film. Right. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of in, you know, writing class, people call it the hook, but I, I think that's a little, uh, I've always felt that that, uh, verbiage was just a little like, um, insulting to the audience, right? Cause you're, you're almost like treating them like fish, right? Or like, you're trying to like pull them in, you know, They're yeah. just, it's like a trick, right? That you're trying to get them to come in and watch the film. And I'm just like. Okay, well, I mean, we don't necessarily have to trick them, right? Like, yeah, like I, I think a handshake is a great um, way to think about it because you know it it it's basically says this is as a director, this is your time to prove yourself in the first few minutes of your film, right? Like, you should make it so by the first few minutes, um, people know exactly what type of movie they're watching and they're along for the ride, right? Yeah. And every, all of my favorite directors do this. Villeneuve does this. Miyazaki does this. You know, as we've seen, Krasinski does this, right? Um, it, it's it's just it's just a very um, I, I feel like honest way of filmmaking. And um, I don't know, it's cool. It's cool. I just uh, I, I like that you were talking about how it kind of like encapsulates the movie, though, because you know, one hundred percent agree. It's absolutely that exactly what you're saying. Um, you know, you hear a lot about, um, you know, people learning to screenwrite or people trying to teach writing films, uh, so on. You hear there's a similar pattern, the thing that you're talking about right now that a lot of people uh, recognize and then uh, personally instantiate. So mm -hmm. you'll hear a lot of uh, like inciting incident, as you're saying, um, or you'll hear save the cat. Um, mm -hmm. And all these other different sort of phrases to refer to uh, what you're supposed to try to pull off at the very beginning of your story. 
mm-hmm. but I agree with you. I don't, you know, uh, when you think of something like Save the Cat, for example, you know, like um, it's so one dimensional as opposed to thinking about doing it in a way like this, how, what, how uh, A Quiet Place did it. Um, as opposed to, you know, because you could say, you know, someone who's teaching Save the Cat could be like, look, John Krasinski just tried to save the cat, the cat being his son, but he failed. But we still think he's a good man for doing it. But there's tragedy. And now everything's set up. But I think, uh, as you've pointed out, thinking about that in that way is a little too simple. Whereas when you look at the full prologue and its context, it is setting up, as you're saying, the entire film from the techniques being used to the subjects being talked about. Uh, to the struggle and the meaning and so on. So yeah. I agree. Um, sometimes these patterns are useful to hear about and to talk about, absolutely. But sometimes they can be so oversimplified to sort of almost stifle creativity and to think about it in in not such a great way. You were um, talking about uh, tricking the audience. It's almost like manipulating them right. in a bad way. Right, um, right. But also it's like, when someone's teaching you how to manipulate someone, if you think about that for a second, you're likely to flub it as well. Like even just think right. about someone trying to teach you how to like manipulate someone in real life, you're mm-hmm. likely to sort of flub and fall on your face. So I feel like a lot of people get taught these techniques and they're just sort of, it actually hinders their writing and their ability to tell stories. Yeah, the, the way that I see it is um, like someone who uh, learns the base or the, the tricks and tips of a craft without ever learning the fundamentals. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's that's always been my biggest um, problem with film school um, is that like, you know, I went into like screenwriting classes and stuff and like I was like, hey, maybe we should just be learning like, you know, basic English first because it seems like that's the problem that we're having, <laughs> right? Like it's not it's not so much the um, – it's, it's not so much that people don't know the tips and tricks of the trade, right? Um, yeah. And, like, I've, I've never been a believer in, like, you know, getting those shortcuts that, um, that like, help you seem like you've crossed the finish line, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just build up your fundamental knowledge. Like, you know, learn how to do things right and, like, build a solid foundation to, you know, learn on. And yeah. It's not what people want to hear, right? <laughs> and I think I think that's I think that's the problem is that like you have a lot of people coming into film that want to take it the quick and easy route. Yeah. Um, and I think unfortunately people can actually uh, succeed for uh, quite a long time taking the quick and easy route because you know in film you have so many people to lean on and rely on that can kind of like pick up the slack. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, like if you're a writer or a director, like you don't you don't have that luxury. Like if you're if you're trying to get people to pick up the slack for you, um, like there are subtleties in your jobs that like cannot be picked up by other people. Right. Yeah. And it will be noticeable in the end product if it's not there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people want to treat uh, putting together a script sort of like uh I have collected these hundred patterns and now I need to sort of mix and match and arrange them in my own unique way out of the possibility of arranging these hundred patterns a different way. Right. Um, and it doesn't work. Uh, oh. Like you said, you need to do uh, your fundamentals. You just need to work on yeah. that really hard. But also there is that more romantic aspect of creating a film that's going to like come from within. 
right. um, that you're not going to be able to sort of like, you can't ignore that and you have to like, it's hard, but you have to figure out a way of cultivating that. And if you ignore that for your, well, I got my save the cat. I got my, like, I got the, the low moment here at the end of the second act, beginning of third act, you know, yeah. uh, it's gonna, it's gonna feel artificial. Um, and some people might fall for it, you know? Uh, but it's not, you're not going to end up making a quiet place. So, well, and I think that's, this is with any craft too, where like, if you, if you learn the fundamentals of your trade to the point where it is, it is like second nature, everything then comes from within, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're able to completely unfiltered, like take things from within you and turn them into things in reality. Right. Um, and that's, that's the dream, right? That's the goal. Um, mm -hmm as a filmmaker, but um, yeah. kind of just to build on what you were talking about with the, like people trying to slap these tips and tricks together. Um, I just, I, I also think that it's like a lot of these things like save the cat, like, you know, hooking the audience, those things I feel like come from the wrong perspective too. Cause I've noticed that a lot of, a lot of times when um, people are teaching the patterns of film um, it's, you're almost taught these things as a viewer watching a finished film. Yeah. Right. And like all these patterns make sense when you can see them like that. But the problem is that they are over generalized on hyper specific elements of the film. Right. Yeah. So essentially like I can, I can line them up to any film. Right. Yeah. Which you can makes... break down any film in three act, five act, eight act, mythic structure, right, any film right. can fit. Um, and I, I think the problem with that is that if, if it works on everything, it's kind of useless in terms of like yeah. <laughs> an analytic structure, right? Um, like it, 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 the problem with coming at it from an audience um, analysis kind of perspective is that like it doesn't really help you learn how to create it from the ground up, right? And like you're saying, when you try to use these tips and tricks right as the writer creating this thing from the ground up it ends up feeling artificial right because mm -hmm. you're doing it for that reason right to like yeah. just just to f like check the box of like oh yep i saved the cat right and like if you're having that moment to save the cat right that's all it's going to be it's going to be devoid of any depth right mm -hmm. um and uh, that, dual that's, meaning you know, yeah, exactly. also thinking like, how am I going to get the actor to actually be likable as opposed to thinking about the character in terms of those ways rather than just sort of checking the box. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like that's one of the ones I hate the most. I, I wrote this script in film school and like um, it got shredded to pieces, which I, I don't mind, you know, some criticism coming in towards my uh, work. But like um, the criticism that was coming towards it was just so absurd to me because like a lot of people were trying to make me make my character likable when the whole point of the script was, you know, like I, I wrote a script about a, a fucking horrible person. Right. Yeah. It was a and, nightcrawler before nightcrawler existed. Right? Essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it was this like irredeemable man who just like, um, essentially I wanted to create a moment where he, uh, he, saw past his delusion for like a split second in a like in a shit bathroom with i think he had like a broken nose and uh like just food and cocaine all over his face right like it, it was just you know he looked like shit and his life was reflected physically on his face and he was alone you know no one to see him in this bathroom and like 
he has this moment and then decides to like um just continue being a piece of shit after that right mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it, it was just a short film right but i never actually made it but it was just a script that i wrote for uh, one of my classes but um like some of the criticism i was getting man like he, they were like oh we want to see him be redeemed we want to see him like um like marry the girl in this who like f- you know thinks he's a creep and fucking hates him rightfully so right um yeah and like just just the complete like everything was about these like surface level things right um and i think i think i maybe heard like one or two good criticisms about it but like everybody in film school had been being like taught these um this like really crappy way of looking at film right and i'm like well how are you how are you going to watch films like nightcrawler or there will be blood right yeah if you want like characters that are likable right and and mm-hmm. that's like your main criteria for watching a film you know yeah it's it's ridiculous but um yeah no i think i think when you don't when you have the fundamentals when you aren't really like focusing on all the little tips and tricks that you can use you can make a film like quiet a quiet place and honestly like like you were saying before i think this could be done um for way less money than it even was um yeah that's so encouraging you know right um i mean like if you changed up the uh horror element a little bit i mean look like look at uh what's that netflix film which i hated um (laughs) uh bird box sure right um i bet you that had way lower budget right um it could have whether or not it did it right. could have though for sure but similar concept i mean like I, I think that film probably could have been done for under a million right i'm sure it wasn't just because of like the actors involved in and stuff yeah. but yeah having um, to pay people right 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 but i think that could have been done for a little under a million if uh if they really uh you know pinched their pennies but yeah no absolutely that's super encouraging for people because a million dollars like you can you can find that anywhere right like there are a lot of millionaires in the united states and like a lot of people that would be like willing to pitch in for a good idea right Mm -hmm. um but that's kind of cool i i I do like the idea that like you know something like this could be made for so cheap yeah and like look at you know, it's not even, it's cheap, but also just look at like the resources involved. It's like, oh, you need essentially one location. Mm-hmm. You need uh, just a handful of actors, you know, mm-hmm. and you got it really, you know, um, you, you're not, you know, you're not shooting in like a hundred different locations across the city or anything like that. Um, so really it's just, you know, your own creativity, your own ability to solve these problems and you can make a film of this quality, I mean, essentially on your own. Um, mm. You know, if they didn't have CG monsters in this movie, I would go as far to say that as long as you were committed enough and willing to put in the time and found people that were committed as well, you could make this for, you know, you know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, and I'm less. sure a lot of this, a lot of the budget went into advertising too, because I saw trailers for this thing everywhere. Yeah, and um, you know they have people to pay and they're going to have a full actual crew because you know, why not? They can, but right. I'm just saying like, you could do this without that. So. Yeah. You could do this with a skeleton crew. Um, yeah. 
you might not be able to get some of the like more uh, advanced like crane shots and stuff that they they were getting absolutely um but uh oh you you also probably wouldn't be able, able to do something like the silo set piece right? yeah which there's a lot of cg involved in that as well right so um, really that's just like the uh the one the one big um um thing holding you back is a small budget filmmaker <laughs> yeah. uh you can do some things but uh you're really relying on either finding a talented individual or having to pay a place and then it's going to cost so yeah i mean honestly the the silo set piece was a really um uh i think it added a lot of like value to the production too right Mm -hmm. um for what it was because it wasn't like you know they didn't have to go like full-scale avengers blowing up a bunch of streets in new york or anything right but i think it still created a lot of um like it 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 created a lot of believability for the world um because like everyone can sort of tell when like you know you're skirting around the budget you know yeah um but I, I think that one of the best ways to make your budget seem way bigger than it actually is, is to like use it wisely in places that um, is going to offer up the most production value. Yeah. Right. Um, for example, um, I in uh, my film Reaper, right, I had a scene where like this guy's in a like shitty motel and he's seeing like a um, a news uh, stream of himself right basically being accused of killing someone right um and where i chose to put like a lot of the budget for even like this half of the film was actually the news stream itself right <laughs> so like sure. getting getting the reporter getting the police officers there like having the whole street taped off and everything and you know like um and this my film is a tiny tiny budget it's like fifteen thousand dollars right but um, I, know, I think we put almost a grand into that shoot, um, and it's just on a TV in the in the middle of another screen, uh, yeah, scene, right? Um, but that's the kind of thing that, like, you know, even though it, that did cost quite a bit, it's one of those things that people don't really notice, but adds a lot of believability to the world. And I think the silo is kind of the same way, where, you know, it's. I feel like that's something that a low budget filmmaker would have avoided, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, um. But in terms of just like having a um, with with the rest of the film, having that little moment at the end, that kind of contrast, that's a, a little bit larger than like what you would see in your average drama. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. I mean, because when you think about it in the rest of this film, they're really just encountering these monsters in like a basement, <laughs> like the right, same right. basement, too. Um, right. You know, so it, it does. It takes it over the top there. Um so I agree with you. Uh, value. I wonder. Buck. Yeah, I wonder if the uh, flooding the basement scene costs quite a bit too. Because like, it, I, I, I guess it would be easy to flood a basement, but I'm sure that they had a lot of like safety pr- protocols and stuff, and it probably sure. wasn't a real basement. It might have been like in a studio or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? um, I don't know. I don't know. It would be cool to see like how they kind of did, did everything. Yeah, I need to buy this Blu-ray and watch the behind the scenes for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, also, one thing I wanted to talk about is this is not a silent film, as we talked about. The sound design is amazing in this film and adds so much. But it's a silent film in the sense of the acting without talking or with very minimal talking, you know? Right. And 
it, it was two things. One, the actors are amazing at conveying emotion on the yeah. face, all of them. And yeah. second, it's also the lesson that if you're setting everything else up for success for the actors, the audience is going to be willing to almost read it into them as well from the beginning. Mm. Um, so I, I found that really interesting where if you're if you're doing a scenario where you set them up to be frightened, you know, they can have amazing fear on their face but if you're doing it well with the sound design with the production uh with your pacing uh that's only going to end up helping them uh in amplifying whatever the actor is doing um so i really like that because i think a lot of times if you're not like aaron sorkin you know i think a lot of times um well, dialogue is just sort of generic. That's just something that made me, like, this movie made me realize that. I was like, oh, wow, uh, I haven't really thought about uh, dialogue in, in a while. And there are some films that do it, like, in an amazing way. You know, you think of Aaron mm. Sorkin or, like, David Fincher films. And there's, or Tarantino films, for even that matter. Uh, these characters conversing in really interesting ways and how they shoot the conversations. But in general, right. so much cinema is done with very generic instances of people conversing and conveying emotion and things relating to the plot and the story and so on mm. um that when you see something like this it just contrasts all of that immediately and you're like wow there's all this different there's this completely different way in which you can set up your actors for success in order to convey their character their emotions what they want and everything um with just their face and just their movements mm -hmm. you know just the blocking um and so that's a really uh, and, you know, that's something that's always interests me because the short film, my sort of like, I don't know, my senior short film or whatever you want to call it, a film school, the last one I did before I left, um, was originally a dialogueless script. And um, it was only on set when there was this scene that I wanted to shoot without dialogue that I started uh, with the actors. I started, uh, they started uh, freestyling it, essentially, mm -hmm. improving it. And so then we came to the decision. And so we only had one scene really with dialogue and the entire thing um, because of that and worked out. But mm -hmm. conveying plot details, conveying uh, character emotion through the camera, the music, the editing, uh, if you're able to do it that way, that's almost more powerful than what you see done in the generic way with dialogue. And if, imagine as the masters do, uh, if you can combine both at the same time but i almost feel like it'd be more useful as a filmmaker to learn it the way that a quiet place does it first and then add on the additional layer of really actually doing dialogue in a quality way yeah um, i think so too rather than generic um but it, you know it's just watching this film it, it just reminds me of all of that and it's just mm -hmm. a great a great example of that for any you know any young filmmaker anyone still wanting to learn some lessons so yeah i, I actually remember that film i think um, that you made cold mornings yeah that, that, yeah, that, that scene was really good actually the um, improv dialogue well yeah the improv dialogue was really good i was dealing with some good actors but what another thing watching a quiet place that made me thinking of cold mornings is something i realized <laughs> that i did similar was there's a there's a couple scenes in here where you're getting essentially a montage of inserts and john krasinski's like office slash like security bunker where you're yeah. getting all of like the newspaper headlines and you know his own like notes on things to like talk about the world and like what he's doing in the world yeah um and i was like oh yeah like that works so well it's so simple and it works so well even at the very end 
when the monster's in the fucking basement and the the deaf daughter looks to the side on the whiteboard and it's just like, what are their weaknesses? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what is the weakness? Yeah. It's so on the nose, but it completely works. Yeah. Um, I think and- um, that moment when uh, John, Krasinski, John Krasinski was in the basement by himself um, at the beginning when we were kind of getting exposition of the news clips, that would actually yeah. be... Um, an example of omniscient perspective used well, in my opinion. Yeah. Right. But like, I'm saying like in my short film, I did a very similar thing where you had the conversation going on and I had, there was all these like legal papers over the desk Yeah, and I did the same, all the inserts and I was like, no, okay. Yeah. I'm proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. What are you saying? Um, No, I was just saying that like um, to kind of loop back to uh, perspective in film. Right. Mm. Um, That, that moment when he's in the basement by himself, you know, and we're kind of seeing all the news clippings and stuff. Like we're not following yeah. anyone's perspective at that point. Like that's purely for the audience, but like, I don't know. I, I, I'd say that that's some omniscient perspective used well. Um, see, I, I don't think that omniscient perspective is necessarily bad. Um, but I think when you don't do it on purpose, it's bad. You know, like when you kind of, when you're just kind of shooting standard, and it just sort of happens because that's what happens when you're not following anyone's perspective. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, I, I think, I think, uh, I think, I think it's usually the sign of a bad film. If like everything's like from the omniscient perspective, uh, usually I, I'm sure that I could find a example of one that's not, but, um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. How would you word that? Because, you know, in writing, you have first, second, and third. Really, it's only first and third. Uh, second perspective is sort of like dialogue, right? It's sort of like yeah. people talking to each other. Like, um, uh, I mean, maybe you, you could call the omniscient perspective dialogue. Or, sorry, not dialogue. Uh, second, right? Second mm-hmm. perspective, because that's kind of like, you know, your perspective as the audience. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Um, I'd say in films like usually we're in third person um i think what are, what are some uh examples of like first person like because i'm not even saying that we have to use the words of writing the terms of writing to really i think it's helpful it's though, obviously right? different um no yeah but, but like, i'm wondering like because what's the difference between um someone just sort of omniscient shooting a character throughout the entire film and would we call that third person and would we call like first person when you make the sort of identity of the character, um, the, the audience. focal point of the scene. Um, yeah, I don't. Well, may, you know, maybe it's wrong to say that omniscience is second person. I would say that maybe something like hardcore Henry uh, would be second person because you're turning the audience into the character. Sure. Right. So, um, you know, obviously from like a camera perspective, that's you would call that first person, right? But um, from like a, th- a thematic perspective, I would say that Hardcore Henry is a second person movie, right? Because it's you, okay. right? All the characters are referring to you um, yeah. as you're watching the film. Um, yeah, I'd say um, third person is usually like either close third or far third, right? I'd say that most movies are far third um, just so they can jump perspectives. Uh, I think close third are when we like really dig into like one character. So I'd say something like um, uh, drive or there will be blood is close third, right? Cause we're, we're very like hyper focused on one character's um, 
I like that. Uh, I like close third and far third is the way I yeah. think about it. Because there's not really a... Uh, oh, there is. I think there is a first person. And that's when we are uh, receiving the inner dialogue of someone. Oh, like monologue? Yeah, yeah like a movie with a lot of... like Okay. Yeah. With a lot of voiceover. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're um, right. That does work. I like thinking about it in close third and, and uh, in far third, though. Because that there is that dissonance there where it's like... But, there is like obviously <laughs> some difference between some movies yeah. and these other movies. Yeah, yeah. And they can't both be third. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about it that way, that solves problem. Yeah. Um, but I, I, just, I think it's like very interesting to. Um... So would you say this is a movie of a collection of close thirds? Uh, no, I would say it's still, it's probably still far third. Um, okay. I, just because I think, um, I, eh. I don't know because we're I, we're talking about labeling it, and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with its particular instantiation. Um, right. So I, I think it would depend it. on what we consider close third, right? Because like, is close third meaning that we're just like we're experiencing the characters' emotions through the camera and the music, um, and is far third kind of more that objective? Well, um, if we're just saying like, I'm fine with it being far third still. If we're just saying like. The default for filmmaking is to do essentially none of these, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of what I was thinking. Is like a lot of I, I think, I think a lot of film does not have a perspective, right? Okay. Um, and that's kind of weird to say because I feel like things inherently have a perspective no matter what. Um, maybe it's like far second, <laughs> like you know, they uh, have like no the audience like perspective, they have no. But, they have no purpose. Like they're not purposely giving it a uh, perspective. You know, that's what it really is. Like they right, may right. incidentally be doing, you know, far third, close third, uh, right. but like following that through throughout the entire film is the difference. Right. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe a good difference between close third and far third would be just be like, um, essentially like whether we're seeing the world objectively or subjectively through a character, you know, um, because far third could technically be, Hey, we're following a character, but we don't necessarily, um, we're not necessarily seeing his, uh, emotional outlook on the world. Okay. Um, I think a good, uh, example of that would be like taxi driver, right? Where, um, I feel like that film is, I, I would consider that far third, even though we do follow the same character like throughout the whole thing, just because I feel like most of it is like you almost being this omniscient onlooker onto uh, Travis's life. You know, hmm. um, I could be wrong, but there, there's moments of first person in there as well. There are, huh? Um, yeah, well, it's a different thing, right? We can't, uh, we can't, um, it's hard easily to yeah. take the concepts <laughs> of writing over into cinema yeah. where you, you know, um, the idea that you can't switch around, you know, it's like, I'm about to read Dune here, but I know one of the famous things about Dune is that it can switch perspective in the middle of a scene. Right. Um, and that's something that cinema can do as well. And it obviously can switch around a lot more than that. So I don't think you can just like on, not on every movie, at least slap. Well, this is the perspective and that's it. Right. Um, right. Like maybe it shifts. Around. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can jump around. That's um, an interesting, it's an interesting pattern. I'm gonna have to well, start actually, you know watching what? movies it thinking about it jumping around because because uh, like Kickass has that whole sequence in first person 
um, like with the night vision goggles where uh, the hit girls like killing all the guys in like a warehouse. Yeah. So, and that movie's not completely second person. So like, I'd say that, yeah, the best way to probably think about it would be that close third is like, you know, subjective um, orientation of, you know, camera music and uh, revolving a character's emotion where far third would be almost like um, being more of like an onlooker. More voyeuristic. Right, right. And then um, like, like for example, the, the scene in Taxi Driver when uh, we're watching Travis make the phone call. Sure. Right. Like that's yeah, not absolutely. his emotion, right? That's Scorsese's emotion, <laughs> right? Um, but then um, second person being just like, you know, first person camera. Uh, turn the audience into the character and then first person being like inner monologue but and also the fact that um, in the story the storytelling medium of cinema you can switch these perspectives many times throughout the film right right Um, and I think actually Kick-Ass is a pretty good example of just switching around because like that film has inner monologue I would say that it's far third in terms of its treatment Um, and then it has a um, like a a first person uh scene which i would consider like second person storytelling right so like that film jumps around a lot so um i don't know i I think it's cool to think of films that way it's um so in, in in this film no i like that i like that that's a cool it's a cool pattern to keep in mind um in this film then essentially what we're talking about is they have a bunch of close third and all of our main characters Mm-hmm. Um, with some far third intermittent uh, right. connecting it. Yeah. Yeah. That um, makes sense. But they always, they, they always have perspective in mind, I think, which is the most important thing. Cause exactly. you're, you're right. That a, like a lot of these films just are devoid of perspective, right? They like devoid of intentionality. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, like when you, when you shoot standard, right. And there's no reason to do that at all. Like it's just going to be devoid of anything. Right. Um, yeah. Just the what, wide, medium, medium, close up, close up. Right. Well, Kudo that's part cases. of the, the director's yeah. job, right? Like to have vision, <laughs> to have intention. So. Yeah. Yeah. I would say cinematographer too. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, All of them. But what's, what I love about this though, and like what I would say really solidifies like a lot of these scenes as being close third is that um, it's not just the camera, right? Like you see the actor's emotion the camera technique and language lines up with that and the music and the sound line up with that too. Right. So you can tell that everything has this, um, this unity that, um, that kind of binds all the elements of the film together. Right. Mm -hmm. And personally, I think that is, and we've talked about this before, but, um, I'm not sure if we've talked about it on the podcast, but, um, I think unity is the director's most important job. Right. To make sure that mm-hmm. um, there's not just a vision coming in here that like all the visions from all these different artists that are working together are working towards the same goal. Right. Just so there's no like, you know, clashing ideas or, you know, I, I've seen that in films where like, you know, whoever wrote the score has a very different idea about what's happening than the person who shot the film. Right. Sure. And it just creates a sort of dissonance that ends up in like a, a blank feeling, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, like there just wasn't really anything there, right? And it's because all these people are shooting from the hip into a dark room, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's the director's job to shine a light on the bullseye. Yeah. Right. Um, to give vision. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, um. And it, it's, it's an important freaking job, right? And I think that's why... Um, that's why so many people, uh, or I'd say so many directors, uh, like who, who just let their crew do everything. Like their movies just feel so like, um, how should I say this? Because it's not like the craftsmanship of the film is bad. It's just like the whole film just lacks any sort of substance. Right. Yeah. Um, but like you know, you're working with professionals, so obviously you know the craftsmanship is going to be great. But um, yeah, the director's job is super important, and you know, we're both definitely believers in the auteur theory, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we've talked about this before, but we definitely, um, at least I, don't think that the director is the author of every film, but he should be, <laughs> or he sh- or she should be, right? Like they should yeah. be like very much the author of the film, but as a director, you have the option to just kind of like autopilot the whole thing. Yeah, right. Definitely. Um, which John Krasinski did not do. No, he did not. <laughs> he did not at all. Imagine also being the, uh, the composer on this film. What a gift. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, imagine this film is so fucking quiet, man. People are really going to be focusing on your score. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. It's got to be a gift. Um, <laughs> you know, you know. I, I just imagine if you scored a lot of films and someone comes to you and he's like, okay, I can't pay you a lot, but people are really going to be listening to your score, man. Like, <laughs> it's really going to matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. it's sort of like, uh, I, I remember, um, hearing about place beyond the pines, uh, and great film by Derek sign France really loved that film, but he got a lot of famous stuntmen to do stunts in there. And he's like, listen, I don't have the resources that these big blockbusters have, but I'll give you one thing. You know how all the big blockbusters, they have like your stunt in there for like a fraction of a second. I'll hold on the entire shot, man. I'll keep the entire fucking shot in there. I promise you. But <laughs> you just got to work for me. <laughs> and they yeah. did it. So it's a, I think that's like a similar thing um, with the score in this film. It's got to be a similar impetus. Right. Um, but um, yeah, it was a great, great score. It was um, um, great violin. Mm-hmm. What would you think? Um, you know, I actually don't really remember too much of it. Um, but, uh, oh no, he failed. Not true. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. What, what, what has he done? Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Cause I kind of, I kind of have the feeling that it was like a little bit standard. No, it um, was, but it, uh, it's Marco Beltrami. He did Snowpiercer. He did Logan, Ford versus Ferrari, okay. World War C, the Wolverine, Hurt Locker. Yeah, um, um, I robot. I mean, he did a Hellboy. great job at like you know playing a part in the in the vision, but like I think that's I think that's all you can yeah, really wasn't, ask for someone to do, right? Like as long as everyone's yeah, he didn't take center stage at all, right? No, which I think is good for this film. And that's fine. He, you know, they don't need to. 
Right. Uh, but I'm looking at his filmography. He's done a shit ton of blockbusters and some really good uh, smaller films that came out recently, like The Drop, The Snowman. Mm-hmm. So this this guy's definitely uh, um, a try at hand. He's definitely been around a long time doing doing his craft. Uh, so what did you think of um, what did you think of uh, what's it called Bird Box coming out to do the same film? like a few months after this came out. It's interesting. You know, they say <laughs> that's how Hollywood is. You know, if you're in yeah. the circles, the ideas sort of spread around and other studios will be like, you know, and that's how executives think, or at least the, the stereotype, which there's truth to stereotypes of how executives think of like, Oh, they think it's going to make money. Therefore I'm more comfortable making something like this, financing something like this because their confirmation uh, they're giving a confirmation, so I don't feel like I'm going out on the limb, right? Oh yeah, it's totally. So that's why. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fear of missing out. Yeah. Um, so that's why all this sort of stuff happens. I've only seen scenes from Bird Box. I haven't seen the, the entire uh, film. I unfortunately watched the whole thing, but uh, is it is it is it good? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was um, like I, I really don't like talking shit about movies, but you know we're not we're not making a whole okay. podcast about it. But it, it was it was not something that I I kind of wish I had got my time back, honestly. Sure. Um, yeah, it did seem to you know some of those Netflix originals they they continue to reappear in like the trending section. Like they've made some really good movies, mm-hmm. but once after that came out, like it sort of just seemed to have been buried in in the limitless archive that is Netflix. It doesn't really pop up again. Yeah. Um, that that was one where, like, actually, um, if you want to compare writing for, for with, like, great fundamentals and, like, writing with uh, tricks in mind, uh, these sure. two films are actually really good to watch back to back because um, A Quiet Place is so solid, right? It's um, – the technique is amazing. Um Everything comes together. It's also not something that's like I would say um, uh, brings anything profoundly new to the game, right? No, um, it just does everything extremely well, right? Um, you know, keeps perspective in mind, like has uh, great acting, great sound design, great cinematography, and like um, I think most importantly relies on solid fundamentals, right? Um, where if you want to see a film that just completely like almost entirely relies on emotional manipulation and tricks, I would say bird box is that film, right? Like there was, yeah. there was nothing profound about this film at all. Right. It was, it was truly just vacant tricks, right? Film tricks. Sure. Um, and like, you can see that especially at the end. Right. And I was kind of like holding out hope while I was watching it, you know, uh, hoping that all of this would actually kind of make sense and, you know, be for a reason. And the ending was just a huge letdown, you know? Uh, nice. It was just a, it was just a, <laughs> you know, look, they did it type of thing. Right. <laughs> um, um, that's always an extremely fun thing about uh, these phenomena 
where two very similar movies get made uh, because of the emotions and fears of studio executives. Right. Where you get to see the good one, you know, because there's almost <laughs> always the good one and right. then there's the bad one. And you get to sit there and compare. You get to compare prestige to the illusionist, you know, mm. and, and things like that. And you're just going to be like, it's it's nice to have that, to have that side by side. If they had the same idea at the very beginning, the same sort of setting, character, theme, you know, basic basic uh, world building, that sort of thing, and to right. see how they end out, um, it's always fun. So maybe I should do that. Maybe now that I've recently watched Quiet Place, I should just uh, go watch, watch Bird, Bird Box. Box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to see. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, to be fair, though, Bird Box did do the same kind of, like, you know, they did did it on a really low budget. Um, actually, don't even know what the budget was, but and we uh, never will because of Netflix. <laughs> do they not put it out? No, they keep everything really on the down low. Yeah, that's so interesting. That would be funny if this cost them a shit ton of money because it, it shouldn't have. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Um. So, Quiet Place 2 is coming out soon. Um, mm-hmm. I'm actually really interested in that just because um, I'm really excited to see John Krasinski's um, uh, to, to kind of take the full step into the directorial role and not even have to worry about acting at all. Yeah. Right? Um, so, like, 100% behind the camera, John Krasinski, Quiet Place sounds pretty cool. You know. And I love Cillian Murphy. So oh, yeah. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see, you know, the world, like the Quiet Place world. That that I don't know if you've seen the trailer, but there's that line from Cillian Murphy where he's like, you don't understand. Like, anyone that's a life is not worth saving at this point. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm excited to see the kind of world he builds. And, yeah. Uh, how he's able to take this farther than just, a, you know, a farm. Yeah, and also, obviously, Emily Blunt is one of the best actresses around right now, in my yep. opinion. Um, uh, I agree. I gave uh, the year of, what was it, the year of 2019 to her for actresses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's great. She is. Um, I actually just recently watched Sicario with her, and it was, uh, yeah. that was a treat, too. But... I mean, we're in the same wavelength. Because I'm like, I I just, before we started recording, I was like, Nick, we should do Sicario. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, And I I suggested us doing this episode as well because it's coming out. And he's like, oh, yeah, I already watched that like a few days ago. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So. Um, Cool, though. Uh, um, I would like to point out uh, the cinematographer is uh, uh, Vinterberg's cinematographer. Oh. So, you know, uh, well, at least um, his recent one. It's Charlotte Bruce Christensen. Yeah. Uh, she did The Hunt and Molly's Game and Far From the Maddening Crowd. I thought she did a really great job. Um, but it's interesting to see. It's, I always like it when people who sort of get their start in what, you know, is probably termed like art films, like these really smaller independent films, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oftentimes European in origin, um, do a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to see them be able to make that transition easily, but they also bring all of that, that great visual style with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause this so. isn't shot like a normal blockbuster either. 
No. Um, and a lot of the um, cinematography in this film is like brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, lighting, especially. Yep. Um, Let's get that brilliant. Uh, I always like it when a movie uses more tungsten than they use, like, uh, you know, white light. As well. Right. right. A pet peeve of mine, frankly, but <laughs> yeah. I just love that on screen. Um, There's a lot of cool color. It's, I feel like yeah. it's the same thing as like a V. Like everyone likes Hollywood Golden Hour because it's like yellow because of all the pollution, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it kind of has this like similar glowing effect, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. No, well, I mean, yeah, the movie is uh, the movie's lean, you know? Yeah. The the tension starts early and then it just keeps going and then it's over. You have your your father sacrificing himself for the family, the family surviving. You have the, you know, the setup. There's so many setups throughout the entire movie and payoffs. One of the main ones, of course, being the deaf girl and her earbud. She's mm-hmm. able to amplify that sound and make these, uh, give these monsters sensory overlord uh, so that they're like impenetrable armor. Uh, the, the way those heads look, you know, when yeah. they're like. It's so cool. The monster, they did a really cool job on designing the monsters. But, mm-hmm. you know, once those little flaps on their head, their little like flower petal heads almost um, open find, up. Like who designed it? Uh, it's uh, it's that it's that really big. Obviously, they designed it in conjunction with Krasinski and his crew. I, I don't know who probably drew the best one. Maybe the writers for all we know. But it's a uh, was it industrial light and magic or something. Those yeah. are the guys who did the CG. Okay. Like the that big time well known American crew. Mm-hmm. Um I, I heard John Krasinski saying that they even did some like free passes for him, uh, without him having to pay extra just because they wanted to get it really well done and they really liked his film. Oh nice. Um yeah, so that's really cool. Um, yeah, I heard that making this film was a lot of fun. I heard this is sort of the opposite of a hell shoot from the sort of testimonials, the interviews that a lot of people have done mm-hmm. that I've watched. That's cool. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's always better to keep it that way, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the film. It's lean. Yeah. So, it's amazing, though. I've seen it like five or six times. Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, this, this film has uh, never, never failed to force a tear out of my eye, though. Like mm. that moment always gets me at the end. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. But and I mean the dialogue is so on the nose, right? But it <laughs> works, you know. Like they're sitting there around the water once they're safe with a trickling noise because they establish that, you know, is if your sound is lower than sound around you, then you're good to speak or something like that. Right. But it's like you should tell her that you love her. You know? Do yeah. you blame her? You know? But it so works. They yeah, pull well, it off. I, th- Everything I think it works comes too together. because it's like a father talking to a young kid. You know. Yeah, and, and also, it's also that thing you say about not being afraid of being, uh, what is it again? The word, uh, Alita Battle Angel. What is it? not afraid of being like uh, cringy? <laughs> yeah, cringy, but it's the other word for cringe. Cheesy, um, cheesy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it yeah. just fucking works. Yeah, it does. just always going for it works. Well, always going for it. I even said this is... before, but that South Korean movie I watched about zombies. 
And at, at the very end of the movie, the director goes for it, man. He's doing full slow-mo. The actors are belting it out. They're crying. They're wounded. They're yelling. <laughs> He's got the shots, the explosions in the background, you know? <laughs> and it works because it's always better to just go for it than to try to, like, rein it in and be afraid of being cliche or cringe or any of these other things. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think <laughs> I think that that's generally something that i hope changes in western cinema and i i, I kind of feel m more directors are breaking out of that now you know just because like so many people are afraid of taking that extra step um but yeah no cheesiness like is something that exists in the world right like i've like had cheesy moments in my life yeah. right and like just to pretend those don't exist is just to pretend that you're cooler than you are right <laughs> like mm -hmm. That in itself is a little cringy. Well, that but. circles back to what we were even saying about all these screenwriting tricks. You know, it's partially there to not embarrass yourself. Like you don't want to embarrass yourself. So you follow the well-worn uh, road. You know, you manipulate the audience rather than being honest. You know, right, right. Um, and it relates just like you said, like in your own life, if you're going to be an honest person and you're going to go for it. You risk being cheesy. You risk being embarrassing. You risk being cringy. Right. So, but, but yeah. All right. Well, I don't know if there's anything else to say. I just no, wanted to bring up the center talk movie. for a couple of <laughs> things. So, yeah, it's um, an amazing lean movie. Another, just like Overlord, another great film to watch. Uh, that's full of lessons. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, I guess we'll see you guys for a quiet place too when that comes out. Next episode, we can finally tell you because we have it recorded in advance is going to be uh, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur. So go ahead and watch that if you want to prepare. So, but yeah, other than that, I think we're good, man. So I'll find uh, some interesting video of John Krasinski to steal the audio from and play here for you guys. But uh, we'll see you next time. See you. Bye. My job is to tell uh, the story about this family. And if you care about this family, then um, you'll laugh with them, cry with them, uh, and be scared with them. And I remember it was actually a, um, something I learned on The Office. Greg Daniels, who created The Office, I remember he said to me one day, he said, your job is not to deliver these lines funny. Your job is just to deliver the lines. And whether people find it funny is up to them. And if people find it sad when you say nice things or cry when you say nice things to Pam, that's up to them too. And I've always taken, it sounds like such a simple thing, but I've really taken that for the rest of my career. So I thought, I'll just apply it to this. I'm, I'm not making a scary movie. I'm just going to make a movie about a family. And if their circumstances scare you, then I've done my job right. I always said it, it's kind of, it would be like um, re releasing wolves into like a daycare center or something. It just, we didn't even have a chance with these things. And so the world, unfortunately, has gone uh, to a dark place because not a lot of people are left. And so these people are living on, in a world where not a lot of people are left because of these creatures have come and just taken over very, very quickly. As I was pitching her ideas that I was writing in the script, she never read the script. She was just hearing these ideas, and then she started listing actresses that she thought would be really good for the part. And I actually even started reaching out to those actresses. And then one day we were on a plane together, and she said, do you mind if I read the script? Um, are you at that place where I can read it? And I said, yeah, sure. And she read it, and I'll never forget, she turned to me and she looked sick. And so like before I could reach for a barf bag, she just said, you can't let anyone else do this movie. And I truly didn't know what she meant. It was kind of like this weird, surreal moment. And she said, um, I, I, this, I have to play this part. And I said, are you saying what I think you're saying? I thought it's like she was proposing to me or something. And I said, um, 
uh, are you saying what I think you're saying? And she said, yeah, I, will you let me be in this movie? And I was like, mm, I guess, yes, I guess we can, we can <laughs> let you in. No, and, and I, I've said it before, but the truth is it was the greatest compliment of my career because I have been witness to exactly what it takes to get my wife to commit to a movie and how insanely classy she is, how insanely smart she is, how insanely dedicated she is to all these movies that she chooses. Well, I mean, we learned ASL for the, for the shooting, obviously. I think probably my biggest regret of the movie is that we didn't learn ASL all the way, that we didn't just learn this language. And the reason being is I always knew I wanted a deaf actress. That was non-negotiable. When I wrote the script, it had to be a deaf actress, not, because, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because selfishly, I didn't think any actress could have the depth and the texture, obviously, of a performance that someone who was actually living through that every day. But even most importantly and selfishly, I wanted a guide through this experience. Having a family that has uh, a deaf child, I didn't want to pretend. I didn't want to put my own spin on it because I don't really know what that is.